We are to proclaim the gospel, but we are to proclaim the gospel as Jesus proclaimed the gospel, and that was with a compassionate and sympathetic and loving heart. The church has a responsibility to do that. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Well, I invite you to take uh, your copy of God's Word and turn with me again to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 6, and this morning we want to close out our study of Mark chapter 6. And when you find your place there, please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. The title of the message this morning is Christus Consolator. And I want to read in Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 53, our text through verse 56. Now hear the Word of God. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. This is the word of our living God. Please be seated as we ask the Lord to grant us grace as we study this text together. Father, we are overwhelmed, Lord, when we think of all the miracles that our Lord performed. And we are reminded once again in summary fashion, Lord, of the expansive nature of his healing ministry. We live in a world and really evangelicalism that has abused and misunderstood the healing power of Jesus. We live in times in which, through the charismatic movement, a theology and a right understanding of the miracles of Christ have been perverted, and as a result, the glory of Christ has been eclipsed. So Lord, we pray this morning that as we look at this little summary section Mark provides for us, that we would not read too quickly past these verses without understanding the significance of his healing ministry, what it meant for the world, what it means for us as Christians who are now united to Christ, and how we too are exemplify that same sort of compassion. So grant us grace and wisdom as we study this text. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It was the great Princeton theologian, B.B. Warfield, who wrote an article on the ceasing of the charismatic gifts during the apostolic age, and he opened up his article with these words, and I quote, he said, when our Lord came down to earth, he drew heaven with him. The signs or the miracles which accompanied his ministry were but the trailing clouds of glory which he brought from heaven, which is his home. The number of the miracles which he wrought may easily be underrated. It has been said that in effect he banished disease and death from Palestine for the three years of his ministry, end quote. 
I think that this quote helpfully points out the reason for the heightening of God's miraculous works during the time period in which the Lord Jesus Christ walked this earth. He drew heaven with him when he came down, and those miracles were the trailing clouds of glory brought from heaven to earth. If you want a summary of how people who witnessed these miracles viewed them, you can find it as recorded in Luke chapter 5. The crowds who saw Jesus heal the paralytic, we read in verse 26, and amazement seized them all. Amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. That was true because in the Old Testament scriptures, there were sporadic miracles that occurred, and even for a period after Christ's ascension until the canon of scripture was complete, there were some remnants of the trailing clouds of Christ's glory left on earth as the apostles had power, strong power, but only briefly to raise people from the dead and other various miracles. But soon, the healing of people, the raising of people from the dead, prophecies, tongues, and even exorcisms uh, gradually faded off after Christ's ascension. We know that as late as Acts chapter 15, that we read in verse 12, and all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul, this is at the Jerusalem council, as Barnabas and Paul related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. They fell in silence over that because they had never seen miracles like this performed ever before, either in the Old Testament Um, Or in their own day, even as they witnessed things that Jesus had done, they were shocked that the apostles were able to do some of the same things. But soon after Christ ascended, soon after the early church was established, things went back to normal. History was forever changed due to the healing ministry of our Lord, the likes of which nothing in history has ever seen before or after but the people were simply amazed because nothing in the history of the world had ever occurred in miraculous form like it had occurred in the days of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we aren't left guessing regarding the great purpose of these miracles. The great purpose of these miracles is found in a term that the Apostle John uses in his gospel where he tells us that they were authenticating signs to the ministry of Jesus. That is to say, the miracles served as powerful signs pointing people in the direction of the Messiah to authenticate his coming to save people from their sins. In fact, we read this very thing in John 20, verses 30 and 31. These signs were written, John says, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The signs, therefore, were meant to point to Jesus Christ, not beyond Jesus Christ. We are not to eclipse the glory of Christ by overemphasizing the miraculous. Even when the miraculous occurs today, it did not occur to the same degree and depth and expansive nature in which it occurred in the life of our Lord. John, uh, for his part as an apostle, wants to bring this out. For example, he records the first miracle Jesus performed 
where he turned the water into wine at Cana of Galilee. And we read in John 2 verse 11, this, the first of Jesus' signs he did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. That was the purpose of the miracles, the signs, so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Just a few verses later in John 2.23, Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. That is John's point really throughout his gospel to tell us that the reason there were so many miracles is because they were signs, not pointing to themselves, not pointing beyond Jesus, but pointing to Jesus himself, that he was the divine son of God. And that by seeing those miracles, to quote him, you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Unfortunately, many have misunderstood the purpose of Jesus' miraculous, miracle, working, wonder power. It is true, as I said, that in the apostolic age, it was also marked by miracles, including prophecies and tongues and healings. These things served as apostolic credentials that these men were, in fact, God's authoritative agents in establishing the foundation of the church, but they quickly faded away. We read in Acts 5.12, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12.12 that the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So the signs or the miracles authenticated the apostles as Christ's ambassadors, his representatives, that he was the divine son of God, that salvation had indeed come into the world and that was their purpose. Even if you take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 16, a verse that is considered controversial, verse 20, and they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Even though this is a somewhat controversial verse, it nevertheless affirms what Paul affirms in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, and that is that the true signs of an apostle were the miracles that confirm the message that they preached. The miracles of healing, miracles of knowledge in the form of prophecy, miracles of tongue speaking and the interpretation of those tongues all came with great power in the early church. But the Reformation and post-Reformation era taught very clearly that these miraculous signs ceased with the apostolic age and that would affirm what we refer to as the doctrine of cessationism. That these miracles, these signs ceased. Once the last book of the Bible was written, God's revelation was complete. There was no need for the miraculous. Jesus was the final word from God. And once the Holy Spirit inspired the apostles and the other writers of the New Testament to complete the final revelation of Jesus Christ, there was no longer a need for the signs. They were sporadic, they were temporary, and they eventually faded away. But this does not take away, and this is the point to see this morning, this does not take away from the significance of Jesus' miracle working power. In fact, it only adds to it. 
Because neither was his power eclipsed by the miracles the apostles wrought, nor was his power eclipsed by some of the miracles that you saw in the Old Testament. Oh no, what this world experienced for the three years that Jesus walked this earth was one miracle after another from the hands of one truly God and truly man. These were verifiable, these were undeniable, these were expansive, and these brought great healing to those in and around the area of Palestine. In order to understand the significance of Jesus' miracle working power, you have to go all the way back to the Old Testament, to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 4. The people of God understood that the prophets of God were oftentimes given power to perform miraculous signs in order to confirm that the word they spoke came from God. This is exactly what happened with Moses. Moses says, how will Pharaoh know that what I am telling him is a word from the Lord? Exodus 4 verse 1, Moses answered, Behold, they will not believe me, that is Israel, or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. And the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand that they may, listen to this, believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. No. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. And verse 8, if they will not believe you, God says, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile, pour it out on the ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I the Lord? Now therefore go, I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. God says to Moses, you don't worry about what you're going to say and how you're going to say it. I'll give you the words to say, and I'll even give you authenticating signs, miracles that prove that what I have said to you is true, that Pharaoh is to let my people go. This was the experience throughout the Old Testament. Perhaps one other example is found in 1 Kings chapter 17. Elijah raises the widow's son. You're familiar with it. He stretched himself upon the child three times. He cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived And then we read this, Elijah took the child, brought him down from the upper chamber into the house, delivered him to his mother, and Elijah said, see, your son lives. And verse 24 of 1 Kings 17 says, the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. The miracles and the signs in the Old Testament were meant to authenticate the prophets of God that what they said truly came from God himself. 
And so it's no surprise that when Jesus, the prophet of all prophets, walked this earth, Nicodemus recognized the signs that Jesus was performing, and he came to Jesus in John 3, 2 by night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher, come from God, for no one else can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Again, that is the purpose of the miracles, as stated by the Apostle John, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. In fact, John says, many more signs or miracles were done by Jesus, and if I wrote them down, the books of the world could not even contain them. But as I said, there are many today who eclipse Jesus' miracle-working power and the wonder of it by seeking to mimic the same miracles today unsuccessfully. And this has resulted in fabrication. The fabrication of miracles, the dishonoring of Christ. The charismatic movement, which undoubtedly has saved people within it, has nevertheless removed the glory of Christ's miracles and trying to match His miracles in the power of their own flesh. But the miracles of Christ are not repeatable. And in fact, the only supernatural ability of the charismatic movement lies not in the power of Jesus, but in the power of Satan. When Jesus came, he fulfilled Isaiah 61. He is Christus Consolator. He is Christ the Comforter. Abraham Kuyper writes this, Our King is Christus Consolator, Christ the Comforter, in the spiritual as well as the physical sphere. Sin did not come alone, but was necessarily accompanied by human misery, things like sickness and death. This is why Christ, in order to break the work of Satan, had to address the situation resulting from sin on two sides at once. It was necessary for him to stem the tides not only of sin, but also of misery. There is no doubt that the spiritual is and remains the starting point, but by placing his opposition to our human misery in the foreground, Jesus does demonstrate that we would be doing his honor a disfavor if we were only to honor him as the one who announces the gospel, and that we only give him the honor he deserves once we venerate him for saving us from both sin as well as physical misery. And I agree with Abraham Kuyper. For us to skirt over the miracles of Jesus, to say that obviously Jesus came not merely to heal but to save us from our sins, although that is a true statement, it is to take away from the glory of Christ. We are to glorify Christ for everything that was true about Him that revealed Himself to be the divine Son of God. And the reality is that when Jesus came into this world, He had such compassion and love and mercy on His heart that He was not merely a preacher of the good news of the gospel, but He touched many people who never had faith and healed them from their many diseases. As a matter of fact, it may surprise you that when the messengers of John the Baptist came to him and said, who exactly are you? John was languishing in prison and obviously he had some doubts. It's interesting to me that Jesus answered, go and tell them, Matthew eleven four. Tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus mentions all of his healings of restoring blind, uh, sight to the blind and causing the lame to walk, lepers being cleansed, dead being raised. He emphasizes all of his healing miracles before he even mentions to John the fact that he has preached the good news to the poor. Clearly, 
for Jesus to heal was absolutely part of his role as the Messiah. For Jesus, the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, the raising of the dead, the healing of the blind to see, the healing of the deaf to hear, causing the paralyzed to walk again, this was not a peripheral matter to our Lord. It was critical to his ministry to meet people's physical needs because in so doing, he showed that he had the power of God. These were signs. In raising the dead, he revealed that he had the power of God to awaken sinners dead in trespasses and sins. In restoring sight to the blind, he showcased his ability to remove the dark veil that Satan placed over the eyes of unbelievers lost in darkness. By granting hearing to the deaf, Jesus demonstrated that his words have supernatural power to restore spiritual deafness and hardness of heart. Additionally, Jesus' miracles were an important aspect of his ministry because it demonstrated, as I said, his deep compassion, his desire to do good to all people. It's interesting that when Peter preached the gospel to Cornelius' house, he pointed to Christ's healing ministry as an integral aspect of one of the reasons Christ came. We read that in Acts 10, verse 38, that Peter says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. I mean, Peter could have said a lot more about the ministry of Jesus, and I'm sure he did, but he highlights there the healing ministry of Jesus because Peter wants to convey that if Jesus was compassionate enough to physically restore bodies and could powerfully do so, then how much more would he be willing and able to spiritually restore souls? And that's why Matthew summarizes the ministry of Jesus in Matthew 9.36 with these words, that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus was filled with compassion, such compassion that was deep and particular and specific like the time he saw the only son of a widow being carried to burial and he had compassion, the Bible says in Luke 7, on the woman and he told her not to weep and he raised her son from the dead. Old Jesus came, as Mark says, Mark 10.45, the key verse, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Yes, Jesus came to give his life a ransom for many, and if he wouldn't have given his life a ransom for many, there would be no eternal salvation. But listen to that verse again. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus came to serve. He came to meet people's spiritual needs through a substitutionary death upon the cross, but leading up to that, he was the servant of all servants and providing healing to thousands of people through the performing of miracles. And Mark has given us a couple of summaries of this healing ministry. Go back uh, again to chapter 1. We saw the first summary of this in verse 32. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. The whole city was gathered together at the door, so the door of Jesus' house, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases. He cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. I mean, this is a summary of his healing. There's no way that Mark could go into the great detail of the hundreds, potentially thousands of people on this day, the plethora of diseases and sicknesses and all sorts of 
and every side of the spectrum, and so he simply gives a summary. It's really staggering to think that is a summary and it's overwhelming. Imagine if he would have gone into detail. He gives another summary in chapter 3. You might remember this. In verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea, Jerusalem and Idumean, from beyond Jordan, from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. He told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Notice the language there, all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Essentially everybody in Capernaum who was sick was there. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him, cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. It's hard to imagine the chaotic scenes that developed any time Jesus went in public. There's no way that any human writer could ever describe what is happening. That is why you only see little glimpses of the healing ministry of Jesus, the healing of the paralytic here, the restoring of the of sight to the blind over here, the raising of this dead person over here, but there's no way that the books of the world could contain all the miracles that Jesus did, all the people he physically touched and metaphorically touched with his compassion and with his love and with his mercy. And that is why Mark is now providing a third healing summary of Jesus' ministry in verses 53 through 56. What he provides here in these verses is what occurred once the disciples landed on the shore and departed from the boat after the storm where he had walked on water. They are walking toward Capernaum, and so both along the way and once he arrived there, he is showing compassion on the people, healing them left and right. And apparently, once he arrives in Capernaum, he preaches in the synagogue a message that we have entitled the Bread of Life Discourse. And I want to remind you what was emphasized in that message. Before we even look at our text this morning, it won't take long to look at our text. There's only a few verses. So before we look at it, turn to John chapter 6 with me because I've alluded to John chapter 6 and I want to highlight the significance of the signs that Jesus performed. He gives to us an exposition of the purpose of the signs that he did, the miracles that he performed, and in particular, the feeding of the 5,000. Of course, we read in verse 1 that Jesus went away to the other side of the sea after he fed the multitudes. A large crowd was following him. We saw that at the end of that account, they, uh, verses 14 and 15, as he healed or as he fed the multitudes, they wanted to take him by force to make him king. We, we saw that Jesus walked on the water. We'll pick up in verse 52. It says, On the next day the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats, went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So now they're seeking Jesus and the disciples after the storm. Now they have crossed to the other side to Capernaum. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them. Now we know from verse 59 that he spoke these things to them in the synagogue in Capernaum. And so this must be an example of the people 
sort of choosing the topic of which Jesus would preach. And he gives to them an exposition of the purpose of these miracles. He says in verse 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, there's that word again, or miracles, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign, there's that word again, do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. In other words, you want to talk about Moses and the manna, well, let's talk about what I just did the other day and producing tons and tons and tons of bread from just a few loaves. Those loaves pointed, they were a sign that pointed to me. The bread of God, verse 33, is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of what that sign of the multiplication of the loaves and even the multiplication of the manna in the Old Testament pointed forward to. You have missed the purpose of the miracles. Verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, who father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then pick up in verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. This is not about eating. It is about believing. It is not about eating physical bread of which was only a sign, but believing. This is the bread that comes down from, verse 49, your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. Verse 50, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And the Jews disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They still don't understand that the sign of the bread pointed forward metaphorically to him as the bread that came from heaven. And they don't understand that that manna in the Old Testament wilderness was a sign of Jesus who was to come. And so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, 
Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh, drinks my blood, abides in me, and I in him, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, or we could say believes on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. They missed it. Jesus gives an exposition of the purpose for his signs and they missed it. People today miss the purpose of Jesus' signs. The miracles of Jesus were not ends in and of themselves. They demonstrated his compassion to help people physically, to showcase his compassion and his ability to help people spiritually and to save them from their sins. But like many today, people just wanted him for the compassion and the miracles. Many people today still are looking for supernatural miracles, for a spiritual high, and they've missed Jesus and his salvation and all of that. Others are comfortable with the Jesus that doesn't preach against sin and the realities of heaven and hell. They want one who will fix their immediate problems, perhaps make them financially independent, healthy, wealthy, or wise. And all of this eclipses the glory and the power of Jesus' miracles. I believe the church should sense not only the fact that nothing like this has ever occurred in the history of the world like it occurred in the miraculous scheme of things when Jesus walked this earth, but also to point forward to the fact that Jesus demonstrated compassion both for man's physical misery and spiritual plight. We can learn from that. Today we cannot and should not try to perform the miracles of Jesus, but we can serve others. We can provide for others as our means enable us. We can love others. We can point others, even unbelievers, to Christ as we serve them. We are to proclaim the gospel, but we are to proclaim the gospel as Jesus proclaimed the gospel, and that was with a compassionate and sympathetic and loving heart. The church has a responsibility to do that. And I think this makes the moments we announce the gospel to the world come with greater weight and force. We are in great encouraged by scripture I believe to be engaged with the world as we sympathetically and compassionately serve those in the world of course it means we announce the gospel we declare that sinners apart from Christ will die and enter a Christless eternity but it also may mean that we enter the medical field to help people physically it might mean that we become a lawyer to help mete out justice for others It might mean that we run for political office to uphold the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. We dare not abdicate our duty to proclaim the gospel on the one hand, but on the other hand, we dare not abdicate our duty to be sympathetic with the misery of fellow sinners who need to see the compassion of Christ through us. I think that's one of the great lessons of this summary of Jesus' healing ministry in verses 53 through 56 of Mark. But I also think there is another lesson in these verses, and that is the one to which I want to draw your attention for the rest of our time this morning. I think this passage of Scripture teaches us that Jesus' miracles were authentic. His miracles show us that much of what we see 
in the Pentecostal and charismatic movements today are charades. As I said, I want to state it again, there has never been such miracle working power by one person in the history of the world and we should not try to mimic it today. Rather, we should stand in awe of it and worship Christ and glorify his name. Up to this point in our study of Mark, and even in my words that I've addressed to you this morning, we spent time learning what the miracles pointed to. That is that Jesus was the Son of God. None more compelling than the fact He walked on water, as we saw last week. But as we look at these verses, I want to focus on what His healings did for people physically, such as a study in the compassion of Christ for humanity's misery. And such is a reminder to us, beloved, that we have an obligation to be sympathetic to the pains of those in the world created in the image of God. We are spiritual people, and we are to proclaim the gospel, and we are to do so with great urgency, but we are not to do that and then turn a blind eye to the needs of of those in the world. And this we see by the example of Jesus himself. Jesus' healing ministry, as summarized by Mark, proves that it was authentic. There are three pieces of evidence proving the authenticity of the healing ministry of Jesus. First of all, we see that Jesus' healing ministry was authentic because we see that it is credible no matter the crowd. It is credible no matter the crowd. Notice back in Mark chapter 6 and in verses 53 and 54. We read, when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him. That is Jesus. As stated when studying the navigation of the storm, last week the disciples are heading from the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee to the northwest. Jesus has walked on the water. He's gotten in the boat. He's stilled the storm. He has supernaturally, according to John 6, taken the boat to shore, again showing God's timing is not our timing. His appointed destination for us may change, and that's what we find here as Mark picks up in verse 53 and says, when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. Gennesaret was a, a fertile plain close to the shore of Galilee. The name Gennesaret means garden of riches. And here, as Mark provides a summary of Jesus' healing ministry, we see the riches of Christ's compassion as he willingly heals the multitude. So metaphorically, this plain of Gennesaret served as a place to receive the fruit of God's healing. It was a plain one mile in width from the Sea of Galilee along a three-mile stretch along Galilee's north shore. Capernaum, Jesus' headquarters for his Galilean ministry, lay southwest of it. Undoubtedly, that was the direction Jesus was headed as he would preach the Bread of Life discourse in the synagogue there. Now, John 6.17 tells us that they were crossing the Sea of Galilee eventually to get to Capernaum. And we see that bear out in John chapter 6. But Mark, if you remember, back in verse 45, when he had sent them across it says that he sent them to the other side to Bethsaida. And so, 
Perhaps it is the case that part of the test was telling the disciples to go to Bethsaida instead of Capernaum. Remember, he was testing their faith, and I think this would have added to their straining at the oars as they possibly asked themselves why Jesus was so intent to go to Bethsaida anyway. Here the wind was blowing against them. What was in Bethsaida? Well, perhaps Jesus was telling them to go there just to test them. All along, he wanted to go to Capernaum to his headquarters of Galilean ministry. It's possible also the wind had blown them off course, and so they ended up at the shore at Gennesaret. Supernaturally, John 6, 21, the boat landed there. It landed there because that's where Jesus wanted it to land. But the intended destination is not the point, but the intended duty of our Lord as he got out of the boat. Notice verse 54 says, when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him. He had credibility no matter who the people were, no matter who the crowd was. Verse 54 says they recognized him immediately. They recognized him as the credible miracle worker. They recognized him as the one who fed the 5,000. They recognized him as the one who cast demons out into the herd of swine that dropped off the cliff into the Sea of Galilee. They recognized him as the one who restored sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf. They recognized him as the one who made the paralyzed walk again and who raised the dead to life. They recognized him and they knew that whatever their ailments may have been this day, the crowd in this area in and around Gennesaret knew that Jesus could heal them. His credible record spoke for itself. This would have been a beautiful scene. Josephus tells us that the plain of Gennesaret was known for its natural beauty and fertility. In fact, he says there is not a plant that is rejected by the fertile soil of Gennesaret. And we could well say there wasn't a person rejected of Jesus this day. He healed all of them in this land full of nuts and palms and figs and olives and grapes. Such wonderful produce. In fact, so wonderful that um, that produce was not allowed to be sold in Jerusalem during the festivals lest people be tempted to come merely for the good food. But ever did the fruit of God's compassion fill the appetites of those who sought Christ this day. They went to him because they recognized him as credible. They knew that he could and that he would heal any type of sickness or ailment or malady presented before him. He would do so entirely with 100% accuracy. He had a credible record, so they immediately recognized him. I often wonder how the world views the church. And I'm not talking about whether we have the world's approval. I could care less about that. What I'm talking about is whether the world sees us as caring and credible people. People willing to help others in their time of need. People willing to help others who are unbelievers, who are pagans, who nevertheless bear the image of God. I think there's biblical precedent for Christians showing concern for their neighbors, showing concern for their community. Such does not compromise one's Christianity, but rather it builds credibility to it. In fact, uh, there's a couple of verses tucked away in the book of Colossians. In Colossians chapter 4, if you just turn over there briefly with me for a moment, we see uh, the Apostle Paul mentioning some important principles here. Colossians 4 verses 5 and 6. 
Paul says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I love that. The outsiders there are the unbelievers that Paul is speaking about, those outside of the church, those pagans in that world. John MacArthur writes on the meaning of that phrase, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity, when he says, and I quote, believers are called to so live that they establish credibility of the Christian faith and that they make the most of every evangelistic opportunity. Jesus was motivated to heal those brought to him because he was compassionate to their human misery. Sure, he saw their spiritual plight, He knew the only way they could be saved from their sins was to believe in Him and to trust in Him. But compassion was also a virtue for Christ. Compassion is a Christian virtue. And I want to say this, one is not more spiritual. In fact, I would say one is less spiritual. When they claim to have pity for the souls of others, but they don't pity the pain and the sorrow that others face in this life. Grace can be defined as the aspect of God's love that moves him to forgive the guilty, but mercy can be defined as the aspect of God's love that causes him to help the miserable. And because God is gracious and merciful, he calls his people to do the same thing. Matthew 5, 7, the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Or the words of the half-brother of our Lord, James, in James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. It didn't matter who made up the crowd. They all immediately recognized Jesus as the credible cure of all maladies. And they went to him. They knew where to go when they had a problem. It's interesting to me that Jesus in this passage doesn't vet the crowd to see who would respond to the gospel first before he heals. No, he had great mercy and compassion on all. And I would say that perhaps no greater aspect of Christ's character lent itself to receiving the good news of the kingdom he preached more than his willingness to show compassion to the crowds, healing them of their sicknesses. Provided him unbelievable ministry credibility that he genuinely cared for others, that he was genuinely sent from the Father, and he could ultimately take away sin. So again, Christians who love those in the world that don't know Christ, that is not an example of bringing compromise, but one of building credibility. The world needs to see the church loving her at the physical level of service. That is not a compromising of the Christian faith. This week I read of a mother who went down to breakfast one morning to find a bill placed beside her plate on which her son had written it all out for her, mowing the lawn, $10, washing and putting up the dishes, $5, cleaning my room, $5, taking the trash out, $5, total bill, $25 owed me. Well, this wise mother said nothing. She went about her work for the day, but when her son went to the table for lunch that same afternoon, he found a bill lying beside his plate upon which the mother wrote, washing and folding laundry, no fee, cooking dinner, no fee, vacuuming the house, no fee, baking cookies, no fee, bandaging cuts, no fee. 
Reminds me of 2 Corinthians 12.15. Paul says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. The mother loved and served neither asking for or expecting anything in return. The son served somewhat reluctantly and demanded much in return. But which one was the greater servant like the Apostle Paul? The goal of the church should be the goal of Christ and that is to see souls saved. What better way to gain an audience than by showing love and mercy and compassion, building credibility with the world, with those unbelievers God sovereignly places in our path? I was talking earlier this week with a couple of people, and I made the comment that in America, especially with the modern missions movement, I think we have to our own detriment romanticized mission work. We tend to think that those doing real ministry are those in Africa or Asia. We seem to think that if we aren't supporting as many missionaries as possible as a church or individually, that we're not being faithful. But what about the mission field in which God has placed us? Because here's the reality, the mission field opens to us the moment we open our front door. The world is watching what we say, the world is watching what we do. We are to conduct ourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. What better way to build credibility with the world than to be a servant like Jesus was. What we're talking about is healing ministry, the authenticity of it. And we see, first of all, that it was authentic because we see that it was credible no matter the crowd. But secondly, Jesus' healing ministry was authentic, not only because it was credible no matter the crowd, but number two, it was consistent no matter the context. It was consistent no matter the context. We see this in verses 55 and the beginning part of verse 56. Notice your Bibles, verse 55 says, These people ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. These sick people were being brought to Jesus on pallets which served as beds for the sick. This would have been portable, straw-filled mattresses. And so as he walked with his disciples to Capernaum, they brought the sick from near and far, wherever they heard he was in his journey. And that's the phraseology I want to point out to you in Mark, where he says that wherever they heard he was. You see, it didn't matter the context or the crowd. Jesus maintained both credibility and consistency In his healings, he healed consistently, no matter the context. Today you see so-called modern faith healers doing everything but what they should do. What they should do is visit hospitals. They don't visit hospitals because they need a controlled context. They need a controlled environment. They vet those needing healing, choosing the ones whose maladies can't be outwardly proven like headaches and tumors and stomach aches. But what I want you to see here is Jesus did not control the context. Jesus did not control the environment in which he healed. He consistently healed the same no matter where, he's, where he was or as Mark puts it, wherever they heard he was. And the beginning of verse 56 reinforces this even more. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces. Wherever they heard he was, verse 55, and wherever he came, verse 56, made no difference. He healed consistently in all and every context. He could have come, as Mark says in verse 56, to villages, and he would have done the same thing there. He could have come to larger cities, as Mark says, and done the same thing there. 
He could have went out to the countryside. The context didn't matter. He would heal with 100% accuracy all the time. He could heal in private places or he could heal in public places, as Mark says, like marketplaces. It would be the same unstoppable power. He had no limits. Everywhere he went, everywhere he ended up, he healed. There was no limits on his power, no limits on his compassion, and thus no limit to his credibility with the crowds or his consistency in any and all contexts. And in fact, Mark has revealed that to us as we've gone through his gospel. It doesn't matter where Jesus is. He always has the power to heal. Going all the way back to chapter 1 and verse 21, do remember that Jesus is in the synagogue preaching a sermon. And he's interrupted by a demon-possessed man. And he heals the man on the spot. Interrupting the sermon, shocking everyone. He didn't manipulate the context. And on that same day when he came home back in chapter 1 and verse 29, the unexpected fever of Simon Peter's mother-in-law interrupting his meal. He heals her with compassion. And then all the people hear about this expulsion of demons in the synagogue. And at sundown they brought them all who were sick and oppressed by demons. And Mark even says the whole city was gathered together at the door. Jesus having his rest His Sabbath rest, his Sabbath meal interrupted to meet the needs of scores of people tired from a long day. Or what about the time in chapter 1 where he cleansed the leper? A leper came to him imploring him, kneeling to him, if you will make me clean. Move with pity or compassion. He stretched out his hand and he touched him and he made him clean and the leprosy left him. Time and time again, the paralytic As he's preaching in the house in chapter 2, remember that in verses 1 through 12, the men lower their friend through the roof at the feet of Jesus as he's preaching again and he miraculously heals. Or the time the boat comes to shore and the demon-possessed crazy man comes out of the tombs and Jesus casts the demons out into the swine. The raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead, and being interrupted by the woman who had the issue of blood, healing her on the spot, going to the spot where Jairus' daughter was potentially still alive, and then she died, and then raising her from the dead, feeding the 5,000. Unlike the contemporary counterfeits of the day, known as faith healers, Jesus didn't control his environment. He healed whenever, whoever, however problematic the physical element may have been. Modern-day faith healers cure invisible diseases and diagnoses. Jesus healed the undeniable, visible diseases of his day, physical disabilities. We even read in Luke chapter 22 that he reattached someone's ear that was cut off in the garden and everyone saw it. And I just want to point this out. Not all of these healings required faith. In fact, many of them, if not most of them, had no faith. I'll give you one example, Luke 17. He heals 10 lepers, only one comes back praising God, but all were healed. Jesus didn't vet the crowds. Jesus didn't vet those that he was serving. Let me see if I have enough time for this one. Uh, Are you going to receive the message that I preach? Well, then I don't have anything to do with it. That wasn't Jesus' attitude. He healed as he went, so that whenever and however he could, he confronted diseases and demons and comforted the people, always successful against man's misery and torment. Let us remember that as a healer, he showed compassion 
Because as a redeemer, he came to not only redeem our souls, but to redeem our bodies, which will be resurrected someday. Adam's sin plunged the entire human race, the whole world, into an arena full of disease, decay, and death. And in three short years, Jesus removed all three of those from that little area that he lived in, in Palestine. Such are the trailing clouds of glory that Jesus brought with him from heaven to put in the words of B.B. Warfield. But Jesus' healing ministry proved its authenticity, not only because it was credible no matter the crowd, consistent no matter the context, but it was also complete no matter the condition. It was complete no matter the condition. The end of verse 56, notice your Bibles, is telling because it says these sick people also implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment and as many as touched it were made well. You probably remember the woman with the issue of blood, I mentioned her earlier, who touched the fringe of Jesus' garment and was made well. Apparently this led to some sort of precedent that any time bodies were laid in the marketplaces they simply asked Jesus to walk by not well enough to get up that they might touch the fringe of his garment. This could reveal a desire to be healed without being confronted regarding the spiritual. Many today view Christianity that way. They want God to deliver them physically, medically, financially. They want nothing to do with God spiritually. They don't want their sin confronted. They don't want their lives changed. But this could also reveal true faith. Lord, let me just touch the tassel coming down from your robe. We talked about this before. The fringe of his garment refers to the tassels worn by obedient Jews in accordance with Numbers 15 and Deuteronomy chapter 22. It was worn by obedient Jews to remind them of God's commandments and to encourage them to do the will of God. What was the will of God for Jesus? He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus walked around the marketplace, allowing those to touch his tassel. The point is that he did, the people did not have to touch him. He didn't have to touch them. Indeed, they didn't even have to touch the main part of his clothing. Just a tassel, the furthest thing connected to his body. That's how great his power was. And when they did that, Mark says they were instantly, completely, and permanently made well. Made well. They were cured. Immediate and complete. No recovery plans. No prescribed medication. No rehab program. The condition of the patient didn't matter. Jesus' ability to completely heal was 100%. He never encountered, encountered one person that he couldn't or wouldn't heal, even those who didn't have saving faith. He was truly Christus Consolator, Christ the Comforter. Jesus' healing ministry proved to be authentic in every way. It was credible no matter the crowd. It was consistent no matter the context. It was complete no matter the condition. But I want us to end where we began. Turn with me to John chapter 20. These are the verses that I quoted to you. John chapter 20. And verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples 
that is miracles, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Your greatest need this morning is not physical, it is spiritual. And all of the signs Jesus performed were meant to point to the spiritual. In the Bread of Life Discourse, Jesus said that, didn't he? He said, one must eat his flesh and drink his blood. He was not speaking physically, but metaphorically. But there were many present there when Jesus multiplied the loaves the day before, who had their stomachs full, but their spiritual hearts were empty. They didn't understand that the miracles were not miracles in and of themselves. They were miracles meant to point to the identity of Jesus as the Son of God and the Savior of the world. Don't get caught up in the miracles. Don't get caught up in the desire for some supernatural, visible manifestation of the power of God. The greatest miracle of all was Jesus coming in human flesh. The incarnation where he brought with him from heaven the trailing clouds of heaven's glory Revealing his power to raise the dead. Revealing his power to restore sight to the blind. Hearing to the deaf. To provide manna from heaven. Which indeed he was. And so he says, you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. You must believe that I'm everything the Bible points to me as being because of all the miracles I did. I am the bread of life. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. God has spoken to us through his son who has performed the miraculous and who himself was raised from the dead to be seated at the right hand of the Father. Today we partake of the Lord's Supper, the cup representing his blood, the bread representing his body, but these two, are but signs and seals. You cannot be saved by taking communion. You must believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. It is only through true saving faith that one can eat of Christ and drink his blood and experience him as Christus Consolator, Christ the Comforter. And our prayer this morning is that you would know him as that great comforter prophesied in Isaiah 61 and the one we read about here in the Gospels. Father, your word is so rich because it reminds us of the power of Christ and the glory of Christ even in a summary passage, simply giving to us what we might see on the surface as simple facts of Jesus' healing. But yet beneath it all, we see his compassion, we see his care, we see his ability to heal all in any form of sickness and disease and malady. He is the one who has come into the world to save us from our sins. He is the one who has come not to be served, but to serve and to give himself a ransom for many. His healing ministry was credible no matter the crowd, consistent no matter the context, complete no matter the condition. And Lord, we pray that those realities would strengthen our faith to know he is the savior of sinners. If he can restore physical bodies, 
He can mend spiritual souls, making us new creatures in Christ, giving us eternal life, washing us from our sins, and providing for us the gift of heaven. We thank you for Christ, for he is the true gift from heaven. And Lord, we pray now as we turn to this time of partaking in communion together, that we would meditate upon these very thoughts that are drawn from Mark's gospel. Speak to our hearts through your word. Help us to experience in these visible signs and seals the very presence of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray and ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope this sermon from God's word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.